Hey, pull up a chair. Attacks on Tap with David Axelrod and Mike Murphy. Fox has changed, and my worst polls have always been from Fox. There's something going on at Fox, I'll tell you right now, and I'm not happy with it. David, first of all, welcome back. Uh, Returns from your secret mission here on (laughs) Hacks on Tap. So the Fox bromance is on the rocks with the president. What's your take? Well, first of all, let me thank Paul Begala for sitting here uh, in my place last week. I'm glad you invited me back. He was fantastic. So uh, it was good of him to give the chair back. I felt like, you know, the story about Wally Pip and Lou Gehrig, the guy who took the day off and Lou Gehrig played for the next 14 years, took over that day. I thought Big Allen might be here this week as well. But thank you, Paul. Yeah, Fox, I've had a lot of chance to, uh, I've had a lot of time to watch TV. And this was kind of astonishing because, as you know, Fox has been in many ways state TV, uh, Fox News, particularly the evening and Fox News for Trump and early morning. Uh, That's where he gets his briefings. That's where he gets his sustenance. That's where he gets his encouragement. But he somehow believes that they therefore should be skewing their polls in his favor. And the fact is their poll, uh, their polls are pretty good. Their polls are pretty uh, have been pretty consistently interesting and accurate. And I, I looked at the polling that he was upset about, and I understood why he was upset because four leading Democrats beating him by margins yeah. of twelve for Biden down to six for Harris, and there are all kinds of weaknesses in there that are evident uh, for him, and he wants to will them away. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I'm reminded of the old joke about the wrestling promoter uh, who was depressed and somebody asked him why. How were the matches last night? And he said they were awful. A real fight broke out. Yes. You know, ruined everything. Yeah, right. So we we had uh, we had the reality of these numbers, which is what we're seeing in most polls at this moment in time anyway, shatter that happy bubble of Fox. And I think the president is somebody who sees the world not only through a prism of self, but a prism of my team and their team, my voters and their voters. Their voters are to be attacked and insulted. My voters are to be pandered and coddled. And Fox was his team. As you say, every morning it would start his day and kind of program the the pulse. Those celebrities there are his friends, those new celebrities. And now his own people are telling him he's losing, which is shattering the, the bubble, I think, in his head. And like anything of Trump, when he's unhappy, we get an angry tweet. It's really kind yeah, of an know, amazing... I- you know, read of where his brain's at, and it's pretty self-evident. In his world, nothing's legit. Everything, right, exactly. everything, there are no rules, norms, you know, and uh, so polls should reflect that. So inside this Fox <coughs> poll, not only is he losing, he's at 43% approval, which is his average nationally among all the polls. Uh, but the thing that would worry me for him is this. When you look at his own personal approval, uh, he has just a 2% plus 2 among white non-college women. That group voted yeah. for him by 27 points over Hillary Clinton. In this poll, he is only beating Biden among that group by 4%. And I think that's going to be a really telling constituency in this election. I think that he has a real not a problem with women, and it's not just college-educated women. He's got a yeah. problem with women uh, generally. It's invaded everything. 
So he's down to this demographic cul-de-sac, as I like to say, of white guys who didn't go to college. So he's king of that island, but that is a pretty small island. And the other islands he at least could, you know, contest are, are he's totally declining. And th- this is not one fluke poll. This is the trend we've seen growing for a year. So it's so bad that in a ballot test, even Bernie Sanders is easily beating him right now. Now, you know, we both know that the general election is uh, quite a, a car wash to go through, so so numbers change. But fundamentally, at least in history, these things are a referendum on the guy you got now, and the country's in a firing mood, and they've been there for a long time on Trump, and it's getting and, worse. And you know my theory, which is that um, yeah. it is his personal behavior, it is this utter exhaustion that he creates with his tweets and his tantrums. You know, in this poll, a large majority said they feel that he's tearing the country apart, not bringing it together. This is the Fox poll. Uh, large numbers of people decry his tweeting. And you hear reports of this from focus groups among Trump voters that, yeah, we're kind of uncomfortable with that. We wish he, we wish he would yeah. stop uh, uh, doing that. So, uh uh, the, it also interestingly said by three to one that the administration has made us more exposed to domestic terrorism. So this is a truly troubling poll for him. He has a reason to erupt, but he shouldn't be erupting at Fox. He should be <laughs> uh, paying some attention to his situation. Yeah, he's just, he has, as we know, that flaw of eruption is one of his only modes of communication. I, I think yeah. the other thing about this poll that makes it a little more powerful than other polls is in the half of the Republican Party that's totally lockstep with Trump. Now their own shaman is looking worried. You know, they could always rely on Fox's, everything's going okay, our army is intact, it's how we won last time, our people turn out, all these kind of theories. And now for something from the core of Trump land, a credible Fox poll to actually tell the truth, which is the president's yeah. in huge political trouble. That that's going to shake the. I still I still think that's Trump wishful course. thinking on your part that among that when you say the half of the Republican Party that is uh, that is with him, and we, we should talk about we got we got Anthony Scaramucci coming on. Yeah, uh, we're, we're a little bit later. We well, let's kick it kick that around then because the poll also the Fox poll also dealt with the Democratic race, and um, that was. Also really interesting, Elizabeth Warren had vaulted into second place. There's a CNN poll out this morning that has her in third behind Sanders. But if you average the recent polls, she's clearly uh, moving. But what interested me, Democrats were asked, uh, "Will you be? would you prefer a candidate who will restore the country and get American politics back to normalcy or a candidate who will fundamentally change the way things work in Washington? Normalcy uh, won with 60 percent. Uh, mm-hmm. Fundamental change uh, drew 36 percent. That that would if it comes down to a face off between Warren and Biden, that that to me is a, a pretty significant number. Yeah, I I think that normalcy argument could be the real skyhook for Joe. But, you know, all these national polls can be washed away with one Iowa caucus upset yes. or different yes. change. But you, you can't see the race we, starting yeah. to find its lanes, to use an overused term. Warren is consolidating the left. She's had the growth story. But Bernie has Joe some of that kind vote of normalcy. as well. Yeah, and Bernie's declined, but he's got a chunk, yeah. and because he can keep raising money, he's kind of hard to get rid of. But you can, you can see the natural order coming. So the question for Elizabeth Warren, I think, is they've done a great job working that progressive base, but in tone and a lot of her policy, she is big changes, and she is a fighter. There could be a Warren fatigue factor over time. So 
Do they start thinking about the general election or they double down on what's working in the primary? And then general election looks riskier and riskier. I think yeah. that'll be the story of the next six months. So on this uh, issue of risk, uh, you know, central to the Biden argument, in addition to his, his sort of meta argument, which is he's about returning civility and decency uh, to the Oval Office, um, there is this, uh, as part of that, he, you know, he said the other night, there's an awful lot of really good Republicans out there. I don't know if he was talking about you, Murphy, but I get in trouble for saying that with Democrats. Uh, but the truth of the matter is every time we ever get in trouble with our administration, remember who got sent up to Capitol Hill to fix it, me, because they know I respect the other team. I do. They're decent people. They ran because they care about things, but they're intimidated right now. That actually is something that uh, that that inflames part of the Democratic base. They don't want to hear about cooperating with Republicans. But among, uh, you know, some of these other voters uh, within the Democratic uh, primary electorate, the non-Twitter universe, that actually is a, a pretty welcome message. And then, you know, Jill Biden kind of ripped the curtain off the whole deal. Uh, yeah, they deployed the Jill weapon here. I think we have some sound. Let's see how she did. You know, your candidate might be better on, I don't know, health care than Joe is. But you've got to look at who's going to win this election. And maybe you have to swallow a little bit and say, OK, I sort of personally like so-and-so better. But your bottom line has to be that we have to beat Trump. You know, I, I get why they're deploying the Jill Biden uh, weapon to argue electability. But one, I thought the statement was very defensive and it was a good idea, not well executed. They will have other bites at that apple. But the bigger problem for them is when you argue electability, electability means one thing to pundits like you and me who are thinking about Macomb County or Trump areas they need to shave back with a guy like Biden. The average primary voter is very capable, and we did a little data about this at USC, is very capable of deciding that the candidate that appeals to them is the most electable. You know, Bernie will go out and call it on those corporations. That's how you win. Or there'll be intensity and turnout. So when you say electability, it means lots of things to lots of people. And I'm not sure that resonates to primary voters who aren't on board Biden now with we need Biden. We're going to find out because it is what they got. They're making a big bet on it. And uh, as I said, this 60-second ad just began in Iowa today. This election is different. The stakes are higher. The threat more serious. We have to beat Donald Trump. And all the polls agree Joe Biden is the strongest Democrat to do the job. No one is more qualified. For eight years, President Obama and Vice President Biden were an administration America could be proud of. Our allies could trust and our kids could look up to. Together, they work to save the American economy, to pass the historic Affordable Care Act, protecting over 100 million Americans with pre-existing conditions. Now, Joe Biden is running for president with a plan for America's future, to build on Obamacare, not scrap it, to make a record investment in America's schools, to lead the world on climate, to rebuild our alliances. Most of all, he'll restore the soul of the nation. Battered by an erratic, vicious, bullying president, strong, Steady, stable leadership. Biden, president. I'm Joe Biden, and I approve this message. You know, it's interesting to see the different elements of it. They make the electability argument strongly tie him to uh, Obama, to yeah. Obama, who uh, remains a very popular figure in the party. Uh, talked about how you know you made us proud. Uh, you know, uh, 
trust of our allies, uh, someone our kids could look up to, an administration our kids could look up to. I mean, all of these are counterpoints that are really between the Obama years and, uh, and Trump. Uh, took the little shot on Obamacare. He doesn't want to, they don't want to scrap Obamacare. They want to, you know, add to it. Um, you know, I think it's, it's a well-conceived ad. And as you say, it's what they've got. Yeah, um, that's the thing. What but else the do fact they have? that they're Nothing. running, the fact that they're running these ads in Iowa right now, speak to what I saw in Iowa when I was there 10 days ago for this special that's going to be on my Axe Files show uh, Saturday night on CNN. Uh, and that is um, that while there's a great deal of affection for Biden, there's not a lot of enthusiasm for him. There's not a lot of energy. And this goes to your uh, argument. And uh, uh, I think they rightly see Iowa as a potential swamp for him, as it has been twice before. And uh, this ad is a, is a way to try and forestall that. And this argument is a way to try and forestall that. If I were them, I would be getting ready for, for potential trouble in Iowa. Being Superman, he's not a guy who can lose and survive a lot of primaries. But if he were to lose Iowa, the best slogan in New Hampshire is screw Iowa. A comeback there, a much more Biden-friendly state will be his last chance. And so following that natural dramatic arc of the night trips in Iowa and then has redemption in New Hampshire may be his best poetic way to grab this thing. Because uh, I, I think Joe powering through and winning Iowa is possible, but that is hostile territory for a candidate like him. And I think you picked that up a little bit on the trail. You know, the, um, it's also picked up on social media. We just saw these uh, charts from the New York Times about uh, the social media ups and downs in terms of fundraising of all the candidates. And you see that, that big viral moments help candidates raise money when Elizabeth Warren called for impeachment, Kamala Harris challenging Biden and saying, I was that little girl, a big fundraising uh, day for her. Uh, Buttigieg had a great day on CNN Town Hall, raised a lot of money. Biden's social media spiked on his first day. Yeah, when he announced, it, he never pretty, created anything. Nothing happened right. based on his performance. Very telling. Yeah, so the energy thing is really important. And speaking of fundraising, my friend, we've got a little message here from Stamps.com. No one really has time to go to the post office, you know, and I know how busy you are, and I know you live in L.A., and I know how that traffic uh, is, so you don't want to go uh, to the post office, and that's why you need Stamps.com, which is one of the most popular time-saving tools for small businesses and people like you. Stamps.com eliminates trips to the post office, saves you money, with discounts that you can't even get at the post office. That's pretty amazing because, you know, it's like a post office on your computer. You can actually 24-7 print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail. So I can send my Dear Mitch letter first class. Uh, I can send it priority mail. I can print it all on my computer. And all I've got to do is drop it in the post box or give to the postman. So, you know, the post office gets their taste. Everybody wins here. Now, because Stamps.com is such a no-brainer to save you time and money, here's a wonderful fact to prove it. It's no wonder that over 700,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. Plus, I bet you didn't know this, over 70,000 deceased small businessmen in Chicago still use Stamps.com <laughs> every election year. So it, it's Why do we like have to go there every districts. single... Po anyway, uh, the, the good <laughs> news is right now our listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com 
link on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Hacks on Tap. That's stamps.com. And don't forget to help us with the electric bill. Always enter Hacks on Tap. And you know what? You would have known that if you had good people working for you who are up to date on uh, how to communicate and how to get stamps and uh, other accoutrements from the post office. And maybe if you had used ZipRecruiter, you would have gotten the right, the right people. Well, you know, hiring used to be so hard, but now with multiple job sites, stacks of resume, and all those headaches, there's a better way. All you got to do, it's so easy, is go to one place to get it done, ZipRecruiter.com slash hacks. That's the important part, ZipRecruiter.com slash hacks, because what Zip will do, ZipRecruiter, will send your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. These guys are relentless with their powerful matching technology. ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. I don't know about you, but when I'm hiring a yes man or yes woman, <laughs> I want very good cappuccino skills. I want a snappy salute. I often want somebody bilingual because I like to be praised in multiple languages. It's not easy to find a candidate like that, but ZipRecruiter is the path to scan all kinds of resumes and get the best people. And ZipRecruiter is so effective, Mike, that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. So right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free, but only at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash hacks. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash hacks. H-A-C-K-S. Thank you, Detroit Public Schools. (laughs) ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Anthony Scaramucci, he spent... uh, 11 eventful days in the White House as White House Communications Director. I think he set a record for the shortest tenure ever uh, and and probably the most words spoken uh, in in an 11-day period as Communications Director. Also someone deeply uh, enmeshed in in the business community, in the financial community, and has a strong sense of where things are at. And uh, just to welcome Anthony in, uh, let us hear what the President of the United States had to say to the people of New Hampshire last week about the economy. So I won the election. The markets went up thousands of points. Things started happening. You started doing things that you would have never, even though I didn't get sworn in until January 20th. You have no choice but to vote for me because your 401ks, down the tubes, everything's gonna be down the tubes. So whether you love me or hate me, you gotta vote for me. So we have the perfect guy to interpret what we just heard. Uh, The man of the hour, a guy who's in the news and in the president's crosshairs, uh, Anthony Scaramucci, uh, the mooch. so what do you what did you hear when you heard that this was in the midst of his last week of lashing out First of all, thanks, guys, for having me on. Do you want me to translate that like a U.N. translator? Would like you? Yeah, that'd be fantastic. Exactly. Exactly. You can add any really psychological okay. insights, too. <laughs> yeah, so, so what's going on there is that's total nihilism from a demagogue. And so basically, um, in Michael Beschloss's book, The Conquerors, Uh, When Hitler figured out that the Soviets were descending on Berlin, he told the generals, flood the coal mines, bring down the electrical grid. And so he's signaling to people that I'll do everything I can to destroy you if I get destroyed. That's number one. Number two, 
Um, this is no self-importance on my part. This is just the effect of the news. You know, I'm signaling to him, and he knows I'm a truth-sayer, that the people around him inimically hate his guts. And so that's inside his melon right now. That's why he's saying whether you love or hate me, you're going to vote for me anyway because he has the self-esteem of a pigeon. And so he's sitting there saying, wow, these people probably really do hate me because I'm, you know, I have no morals. I'm a disgusting guy. I, I'm detached and I drop people like hot potatoes. And so that's now being full-blown exposed. And so that's what that whole argument was. Hey, you may love me or hate me, but your 401k is going to go down to twos. But because he's an imbecile, and I mean this in the sense of the business in the strategy and the way. trade strategy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I just have to tell. I mean, I mean, David, at this point, we got to tell. We got to tell it very, very raw. Because if you don't tell it raw, it's not going to ring the bell hard enough of the people whose bells need to get rung. So he's such a narcissist that he's got economic advisors offering me advice and creating a predictive glide path to increase tariffs if he can't successfully negotiate with the Chinese. But he's such a narcissist that he would rather have the Trump tariff roulette wheel going uh, and create all of this haphazard unpredictability. Because the crazy thing about this guy, he thinks he's the only one that can do it. He can't have anyone else uh, do anything. No one else can get credit. Um, on my uh, podcast with you a year or so ago, back, David, mm-hmm. we talked about Ronald Reagan's uh, thing on the Oval Office desk where you can get anywhere you want in life as long as you don't care who gets the credit. Trump is the opposite of that. I need all the credit. There's no co-stars in my orbit. If anyone gives me an idea... And uh, it could get out into the newspaper that I used that idea and they could have some possible influence over me. Uh, I don't want that. I want to win. What I want to do is I want to bring everybody down and I want to prove to everybody that I can win this entirely on my own doing, whether it's the trade deal, the economy, the election. So that's the deciphering code on that nonsense. So, Anthony, you know, the uh, the. Um, the obvious question to anybody who's listening is, um, and you wrote a, a very, uh, I, I think, a very open piece in the Washington Post today about this. But given all the things you just said, uh, why are you such a late bloomer on this? Well, I mean, I tried to write it in the uh, Washington Post. Uh, you know, what happens to you, you have to remember. You know, you and I were talking about Joe Morgiata in Nassau County yes. and where I grew up. My dad was in, the, in a labor... Yeah, my dad was in a labor union. He was a very loyal guy. He was a sort of like the bus driver in a Bronx tale, did everything straight. Um, I was taught loyalty as a kid, um, a loyal Republican. I went to go work for him. You know, he disgraced and humiliated me by abruptly firing me or you know, pushing Kelly to fire me. At some point, Kelly will tell the true story about my firing. Um, but, you know, he, he pushed hard to get me fired. And he, humili- he wanted to humiliate me because he gets a lot of schadenfreude and joy out of, of hurting people. But I looked at the totality of that. I thought it would reflect very badly on me if I didn't stay loyal to his agenda and some of the things that I actually like. And I'm happy to go over the things that I like. I'm not a Trump deranged guy. I'm a Trump fatigued guy that recognizes that he has severe, you know, mental instability issues and he's a nervous wreck and doesn't talk to anybody. So I tried to articulate in the piece that uh, I chose to, for the sake of loyalty, 
and loyalty to party and loyalty to the fact that I had worked for him to try to reflect on the better parts of him. But I do point out in the piece, I broke on child separation. I broke on his denunciation of the intelligence agencies. I wrote an op-ed for The Hill that the press is not the enemy of the people. And obviously the last straw for me is when he went after the four uh, uh, congressmen, even though I don't agree with them from a policy perspective, they absolutely deserve the right to be in the country. They're standing citizens and democratically elected. So to me, that was the last straw. And that was the last straw for him. That's when he started lighting me up on Twitter. And then, of course, because he's, a, as, as a Ted Cruz called him, a sniveling coward. He's got to go after your wife and, you know, stuff like that, which is predictable well, stuff that he's you. done in the past. So, yeah, yeah, so go Anthony ahead. Murphy here. Let me, one, first, welcome to the No More Trump Republicans. We'll have a little swearing-in ceremony <laughs> later. You know, I'm for sure. There was a swearing you're gonna, ceremony. You're going <laughs> to have a, a rough day there, but I'll speak in your defense now that you've joined the light. Here's my question. It's kind of a bad marriage question. I, I've talked to friends of mine who, who've gotten divorced, and often I say, well, when did you know this was a mistake? And they always say, when I was walking down the aisle. When... When did you know, forgetting the public stuff, that, boy, I've signed on to a crazy man here and this thing is going to be rough? Um, you know, I mean, I, I have to I, I really have reflected on that. And I guess I guess when I knew. But what happens to you in a marriage or in a situation like that, you go into full blown denial. Many people in the White yeah. House have done that. Um, I was in the uh, study off the Oval Office. Both of you guys have been in that study. And I was sitting with him. And I don't want to mention the person I was sitting with him with because it wouldn't be fair to that person. And he was rancorously babbling about something in this one very long run-on sentence. And then, you know, the person was trying to give him advice. It was very common sense in its orientation. And it was almost as if he wanted to do the counter of what the guy was selling him because just to prove to him that the guy was insignificant and he knew better. And so when we walked out of there, I had two reactions to that. And I said, wow, this is going to be a hard job for me because he's not keen on taking advice. And then the second thing that came to mind was, um, you know, that there's, there's something going on in his brain chemistry Uh, where the embattlement with the press, whatever you want to call it, the process um, has 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 embittered him. He he has a sense of victimization and bitterness about him that one shouldn't have when you're running the American government and you're leading the free world. And so that's why he's quick to break alliances. That's why he's quick to shift the uh, the situation on people, promise one thing, do another that's why he's quick to fire people. You know, I sent out a cartoon that showed the hiring process. He's shaking your hand on the, on the way in. Five minutes later, he's putting a knife in your back as you're getting rotated out on the conveyor belt. And if you stand up to him, you know, he knows that the people around him hate his guts. And so he has to bully you to create fear uh, to submit those other people to not expressing themselves. And, and, and that's why I call them the wicked witch of the West Wing. He's the green witch because once the water gets thrown on him and he starts to melt, those gray soldiers will turn around and say, I'm sorry, Dorothy. So I'm hoping whoever primaries him has one campaign bumper sticker, I'm sorry, Dorothy. You know, the perceived power of the green witch had everybody in palpable fear during the movie, including the cowardly lion. But once the water hit the, the witch, 
everybody realized that what they were doing, the fever broke. Now, you guys are students of American politics, and, and I think Axe knows that I am. Uh, when the McCarthy fever broke, it didn't go out in a supernova glory. It just whimpered out. People got so tired of it, they literally just fatigued out of Joe McCarthy. And then uh, finally he got denounced, and then they, they moved him off the page. But you guys may remember Dwight Eisenhower was going up to Wisconsin to denounce Senator McCarthy because he was attacking his old boss, George Marshall. And even yes. the five-star general couldn't get up the nerve to denounce Joe McCarthy at that moment of the height of the demagoguery. So, so this is a very tough thing for people. Um, you know, you got to grow up in a neighborhood like me to get this sort of a bully. You know, I, you know, he's like, you know, look, he's a rich punk, basically. And I'm a blue collar kid. And so those guys are easy to take down. Okay. You just, you got to give me a couple more months of working on him. I mean, I'm so deeply inside the melon of this guy. I mean, I got my buddies at home who are like clamors and auto glass installers and deli guys are like, dude, you're inside the guy's melon deep. I mean, you know, poor guy's like ready to explode. So, so, so I need a, I need a little bit more time on this. And if I can get one or two cabinet members to go with me, uh, he's gone. And he'll, so, he'll, he'll disintegrate right before our I, eyes. I, I want to get back to the Wizard of Oz in a second. Um, and whether or not what you're describing, you and Murphy both live in some kind of fantasy as to what might actually happen here. But I, I just have to ask you, I have to ask you this. A year after you were... Uh, summarily dismissed. You you wrote a, a fairly um, admiring book called Trump, the Blue Collar President. And did you read uh, it? You know, I, I didn't read the whole thing, Anthony. I just read reviews and I read summaries and so on. But um, you didn't say the things you're saying today. Um, no, of course I didn't say those things that I was saying today. What, what that book was was a reminiscence of the campaign. It was an elicitation of what he did on the campaign that was a success. And if you read the book, which I would encourage every Democratic candidate to read it, I inserted in the book a strategy and a map for how you can defeat him. Because what's happening is, is that he's so split and divided the country you can't call his supporters deplorables and right. white nationalists right. and all this sort of stuff. You have to do what your friend Pete Buttigieg, not your friend, but the person you interviewed, Mayor Pete Buttigieg is talking about, is reaching out to them. And all of that is elucidated in the book. So what I would encourage people to do, people say, well, he wrote this super glowing book about him. If it was that glowing, David, he would have tweeted about it. He never once tweeted about my book because there's a lot of balance in that book and I articulate a lot of things that I feel he needed to do better. And of course, if you're one syllable, one paragraph, two paragraphs off from Trump, you know, a demagogue requires blind obeisance. It's not a loyalty. He wants you to destroy your personal history and your personal integrity to be loyal to him. And so if you read the book, you'll Did you take think away he from read that the book, book and it's way more balanced. You think he read no, the book? No, of course he didn't read no, come on. He barely he read, read the cover books? of the book. I'm not so sure. I don't even think he read out of the deal. Because you said, yeah, you know, he didn't, want, he, didn't want to, he didn't want to comment on it because it was too, uh, there, was, there was too much balance in it. But I'm not no, sure. No, I'm, probably... I'm, sure, I'm sure he had somebody read it. And he probably said, this little son of a bitch wrote a book about me. Is it any good? 
And somebody well, probably said to him, well, parts of it are good, but he's also hitting you in places like child separation and like this and like that. And then he said, okay, scram, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna tweet out about the book because it's not this unblemished you know, glorification of me. So, so here's to read a, the book, I, I've got um, a I think, Trump I think, in the small I think if you guys question. want to attack, let me just say this one thing, if yeah, you don't mind, ahead. Michael. If you guys want to attack me for being late, I own it. If you want to attack me for trying to stay loyal to somebody and trying to curve what I thought he should be and getting it incongruent to what he actually is, I own that as well. But we have a clear and present danger in the society. And uh, you know what? I love my country. I'm calling on my fellow Republicans to think about your patriotism more than your party. And please speak the truth here because our system's not set up for demagoguery. We don't even know how to handle this guy. Full-blown demagogue. You've got people in places where Slobodan Milosevic were, were, uh, was a dictator. And they're like, my God, he's, he's using the same playbook here. And we just have, you know, too much civility in a weird way in our politics. We can't, can't handle the destruction that he's causing right now. I'm not but trying you to, want to say I'm late? No, no, I'm not you trying to. You want to say I'm late? I own it, David. But I'm, yeah. I'm here well, that's, now. That's let's take the not, guy lights out. I'm not trying to attack you. Okay, I'm just trying to understand you, out. man. Just trying to understand you. So, so here's a yeah, you're never going to be able to question. You could have a you could have a team of shrinks try to understand me. You're never going to figure it out, Dave. <laughs> just so you know. All right, I got a whole basketball psychiatrist. Still well, the new era that qualifies you for the presidency. So a story I heard from a buddy of both of ours. I'm not going to name this person to protect the you know Vichy who uh, travel in Trump circles. Well, of course, like so many Republicans we know have dire doubts. But during the campaign. This person was a huge bundler in Republican politics and called me up and said, you know, I wasn't a big fan. I went in to see the president wants me to raise money for him and not the president, then the candidate. And I said, you know, some of this stuff, it's really unnerving. And Trump looked him in the eye and said, oh, that's just a bunch of crap. I, I, I say to the rubes, you know, to get their vote. I'm, I'm you know, it's crap I make up because it works. And there was a certain cynical intelligence to that, that a lot of Republican fundraising types to their shame bought. But I think Trump has changed. I, I'm not sure he's winking anymore. I, I get the feeling, and you know him better than I do, that in the the last year or so, maybe it's the bitterness, maybe it's age, maybe it's God knows what, that he's kind of believing his own madness now, and that's what we see is really who he is. Am I wrong about that? Is it still an act, or well, do you think that it's well, a pretty I honest would, sampling? Let me let me support it with evidence, because I know the guy, so it's the polls. He's looking at the polls. He can't figure out a way to get the poll numbers to move. And so he had 62% of the white voters last time. He's figuring if he can get it up to 68 or 70, he'll clinch the election. And so he knows he's experimenting. Remember how he communicates, he takes a shotgun approach to his communication. So he'll fire out prison reform with Van Jones and he'll fire out releasing a African-American grandmother from prison. Uh, and he'll get a rapper back from Sweden. And then on the other side of the shotgun spray, He's lighting up the, uh, the members of the squad and telling them they need to leave the country. And so, so that's what he does. And so what he's trying to do is create enough chaos so that people that support him will clutch those things, say he's not a racist. People that are not supporting him, he's lost them anyway. And I, I would just have you guys look at that real, real clear politics, approval, disapproval number, that composite is stuck at about 43.4%. And look at its trend 
and you tell me if you're the candidate looking at that and you can't figure out a way to get it to move, you're going to go full-on nativism. You're going to go yeah. full-on base. Let me see if I can peel that base up. And so not only is he believing it, he's making it ridiculously dangerous for the society. Remember this, guys. A recession is a bone break. We can survive a recession. We've had 12 of them since 1901. But a ripping of the social fabric of the society that we love, of a country whose first name is United, that is a metastatic cancer that could terminate the patient. And you guys know how hard it is to keep a constitutional republic, as do I. We're in our 243rd year. We're, we're already cheating history. We have to get him removed from this office and we have to figure out what went wrong. When he's gone, we need a full forensic autopsy and we need people to really explain what they did, where they were, when it dawned on them that they needed to move away from him and why, uh, so that our children and grandchildren can understand this so that we can hopefully prevent it from ever happening again. This is Joe McCarthy, Huey Long, uh, William Jennings, Brian, Father Coughlin as president of the United States. And we need to make sure this never happens again. Now he says that the Mueller report should never happen again. He and personalities like him should never happen again in this great country. So, yeah, I think he's focusing more on states than United, uh, probably a handful of them. And uh, yeah, you're correct. right. I think he's decided that he, in order to win those states, he needs to turn the dial way to the way into the red here and as far as it will go. Uh, but the chaos you're talking about, it seems to me, is going to cost him elsewhere. Uh, you know, you saw what happened in the suburbs last uh, last fall. And, uh, you know, I don't think that was an isolated event. That was a foreshadowing. So well, my question of both of you guys, though, well, is... Well, attacking my wife is going to play out very poorly for him. Okay, He doesn't understand our resilience and our personalities. I mean, we survived a near divorce as a result of some of this nonsense. And so him going after my wife, not going to reflect well uh, coming into 2020 with white suburban women when I'm running advertisements on my own political action committee with me and her uh, describing him as to what he did and what he does to people. So well, hold on a second. I mean, Wait, a, tell making, me about your political action committee. Yeah, this is interesting. Well, I haven't, I haven't, no, I haven't formed it yet, but I will. I'm in the process of doing it. Um, we have to, it's going to be the committee to dismantle Trump, but I'll come up with a much cleverer uh, thing than that. I'm going to throw my own dough in there, ask others to put their dough in there, and, uh, and we're going to explain to people what he's doing. And here's the one thing. The reason why I'm so under his skin is that he knows I'm not a politician. He knows I built myself from scratch. He knows when he's calling me a dope, it's really a reflection of himself because I, I went from nowhere into the Harvard Law School and built two successful businesses. So he knows all these things. And he also knows that, the, you know, look, at the end of the day, you know, um, you know, I can I can grab a hold of five, six, eight percent of the people that know he's nuts and possibly move them. Uh, and so that's what we'll be working on over the next 15 months. Will you do that even if Elizabeth Warren is the nominee or Bernie Sanders? So so, you know, I'm a very optimistic guy and uh, I think you guys have a very smart party. I don't think you guys are going to do that. I think you're. I think your party over the next 12 months is going to really recognize the clear and present danger to our society. 
And so I predict that they won't become the nominees because you guys are just too smart for that. And I'm hoping that you're going to convert your party into the beat Trump party as opposed to the ideological grab bag flavor of the month party. And so if you do that, you'll pick one of the more moderate people. And I do predict if you get one of the more moderate people, you'll get a very large swath of normal Republicans in order to eliminate him from our political zeitgeist over to your side. If well, you let me let, let me put it this way. Who does not fit invite into me back. Who doesn't fit into that category? So you say Elizabeth Warren, Sanders, who yeah, else? Well, well, no, I would say, well, I would say in my, you know, based on my observation, and you know these people better than me, David, but I would say Warren and Sanders. Um, I would say Biden is an acceptable guy. I would say Buttigieg, I'm very impressed with him. He might be a little bit too young for Republicans, frankly, given their voting patterns. But I'm very impressed with him. He's a moderate guy. Uh, Senator Harris is moderate, although it looks like she's dipping in the poll numbers, but it's still very early. I mean, you know, we're talking here in August of, you know, 15 months ago. I mean, or, you know, something like that. So, you know, you guys have to tell me, you know, but my my opinion is you go with a moderate Democrat, uh, the world. The way you beat a bully is through the village has to beat the bully. You know, I can take him on you know, uh, for a while, but I can't beat them alone. I've got to get a village behind me. You know, some idiot in my party was talking about rapists and incest and this stuff. What he got wrong is that the reason why the rapist genes don't transcend is the village got together back in the day and hit the guy in the head with a rock or put him in a jail. You know, and so, <laughs> hey, when, so you're, when you're dealing so, with a lunatic, when you're dealing with a lunatic like Trump, you need the village. You need the group of us. We're we're Americans first and we're partisans second and we need to think in a unified way to beat Trump and we will. We will do that. We'll set aside our differences and our personal issues with each other but please, you got to put up somebody that I can sell and Michael can sell and others can sell uh, to some of the stalwarts in our party. So real quick, Anthony, because we're running out of time in, in a sentence or two, Using your phrase, which I like, which do you, which Democratic candidate do you think gets into Trump's melon the deepest, drives him the craziest? Well, Buttigieg for sure. Buttigieg is figured out. You got to go high and you got to use intellect. That's why I'm quoting from Seneca and Lincoln on my Twitter feed. I mean, he probably thinks Lincoln is a car and Seneca is like a place upstate. You know what I mean? So you got to go that way with him because it exposes his true idiocy. Um, you yeah. know, and, and you the think result Lincoln of which, was a guy who was too soft on the whole slavery issue? Should have given it a little longer yeah, chance. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Why, why have a war? He, yeah, if, if, if assuming that he, the economy, right, 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 exactly that sort of thing. So, so to me, you know, I would tell these guys stay away from the nicknames. He'll nickname himself. He's calling me a dope. I've got a Twitter poll going, dopey, dopey Don or Don the dope. It looks like dopey Don is winning the Twitter poll. My point being. He is such an easy guy to dismantle if you don't fear him mm-hmm. uh, because he's loaded with these insecurities and these low self-esteem. And so so I'll tell you what, David, I'll make a deal with you, okay? You pick the candidate that's a moderate. I'll come and I'll give them a verbal jujitsu lesson on how to dismantle this maniac uh, and stay strong in the fighting box, okay? And we'll we'll take this guy I'm just out. A hum- I'm just a humble podcaster my friend i'm yeah. just watching yeah, the great you pageant now, of yeah. democracy i've been go in your here. i've been in your i've been in your office i've seen all those great fancy pants pictures come on <laughs> you're not going to pull a fast one over me anthony God bless you guys okay 
Uh, good to be with okay, you, brother. We're, 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 we're we'll in be it, in touch. We're in it together now, whether we like it or not. We're all in it together, man. <laughs> yeah, welcome okay. to the it's revolution. Like it's going to take. It's going it's to take. It's going to take. It's going to take some people in the uh, canoe you just jumped into a little time to get used to the new passenger. I suspect. But, yeah, it's no uh, problem. I, I, I expect we, that. We and by the way, converts. but here's what I would say That's to those people. But, but here's what I would say to those people. Please, as I wrote in my op-ed, create an off-ramp for the people that yeah, know man. they're wrong. I, I, listen, so, I've, I've so, spoken so about this, this. I agree with you completely. Mm-hmm. I, I think that um, I, I jujitsu is the operative word. Jujitsu yeah. is the operative word. Yeah. All right, man. Good talking All to right, you. Anthony Scaramucci. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Always assured of a lively conversation with the mooch. <laughs> and uh, speaking of insurance, these days there are a lot of workplaces that offer some pretty nice perks, Mike. A snack station, 15 flavors of soda, water, and, and even insurance. But while it's nice to have a handful of trail mix and some water that tastes faintly like grapefruit, that's not enough to subsist on. And neither is your workplace life insurance. This is where policy genius comes in. Yeah, you know who needs a good insurance policy? That copywriter, because we're going to look for them after we do this read. But they're a good outfit. I used to be with PolicyIdiot.com, and it was a disaster. Because who wants to shop for life insurance? Nobody. But they make it easy. It's the easy way to shop for life insurance, and you can do it online. They're built to be online. In minutes, you can compare quotes from top insurers to find the right amount of coverage at the best possible price. I mean, I'm a Republican. I like that. Let them compete to give me the best deal. They can look at your workplace life insurance policy and help you decide what else you might need and what you don't. That's what Policy Genius does, which is why they're Policy Geniuses. So remember, workplace life insurance policies are like workplace snacks. Better than nothing, but not quite enough. So head to PolicyGenius.com today and find out how to supplement your workplace life insurance and better protect your family. Policy Genius, it's like a buffet made of life insurance. And what could be more delicious than that? PolicyGenius.com. Okay, it's mailbag time. And, Axe, we have a great question here from Amar. And I'll read it because I think it's a perfect question for you. Amar writes, most of the attacks against Trump seem to be along the lines of he's racist, he's uncouth, our children are watching, he doesn't represent the best of America, etc. I'm fairly convinced that those attacks have reached saturation. How would you try to define the Donald? What do you think are good new lines of attack against him? I think that's such that a good question. I, I do. I agree with the basic premise. I think a lot of these arguments, have, we've heard them. We heard them in 2016. We continue to hear them. Uh, we can stipulate all of the things that are contained within those attacks, but they haven't necessarily moved the people who are on the bubble who uh, may like some of the things that Trump has done. Uh, you know, I think base Democrats are going to be motivated, but there are these people on the bubble who in these battleground states are going to make a difference. And I think the argument that has the broadest reach and the most legitimacy with the largest number of people uh, go to the exhaustion factor, the notion that we can't wake up every day uh, to the kind of chaos and turmoil uh, that the, the mad tweeter uh, creates. We can't wake up every day to a president who divides for political profit and fun. Uh, we can't wake up to a president who picks gratuitous and stupid fights uh, that distract us uh, from 
the real issues that are touching people's lives. We can't live in the chaos that we've lived in for the next four years that we've experienced in the last. I really think that's the most resonant argument uh, against Donald Trump, and I think it's the one that's going to beat him. And it is a it is a paradoxical situation for him because his instinct is to create more chaos in order to uh, pr- promote his political project. And the more he pushes those buttons he likes to push, the more he lends credence to this uh, we can't to this exhaustion argument. So, bottom line, my view is jujitsu is better than karate here. Use his negative energy against him. Yeah, look, I agree. It's exhaustion plus cost. We've seen the show. It's going to cost you money. There's nothing new coming, just more of the same. It's kind of like who pays money to see Gallagher smash the watermelon twice in a row? You know, there's nothing new here. Try. Try the most powerful word in American advertising, new and improved. We can do better than this. Enough already. So the elegantly named David, uh, and it's (laughs) not me, uh, writes, Gentlemen, all I see are the candidates swarming Iowa day after day, week after week. By the end, they'll know each Iowan on the first name basis, which essentially, while essentially ignoring the rest of the country— My question, why does a relatively small state like Iowa and to a lesser degree New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada get to effectively select the presidential candidates? Why don't other states step in, change their primary date, and get as much love uh, as Iowa? You want to swing at that first? I've just been in Iowa, and I want to have at that, but I want want to hear your answer first. Well, we're probably both going to land in the uh, same place on this. It does remind me of the great old joke about the New Hampshire primary where the reporter asked the citizen of New Hampshire, well, what do you think about Henderson for president? And the guy says, I'm not sure yet. I've only met him three times. That's not a joke. So, That's the way people answer oh, in is. these states. It totally remember, is. Remember um, Mo Udall's joke about walking into the barber shop in New Hampshire and saying, I'm Mo Udall and I'm running for president. And the barber looks up and says, yeah, we were just laughing about that. So, look, the, the reason for the little states is they provide an entry point where a candidate like Elizabeth Warren was eight months ago at three or four percent in the national polls can get a small enough chunk to be able to compete. It's a way in so it doesn't become a contest of the two biggest bankrolls and who might have a base in New York, Florida, Texas, or California. It's designed to open the process up and give you the opportunity to get something going. You can then run the dominoes. Now, as far as other states muscling in, the canny New Hampshire and Iowa politicians saw that one coming. So they've set up their laws that regulate primary timing that if somebody tries to come in early, they move earlier than that. It's like an arms race, and they're supported by the Republican and Democratic National Committees that build the delegate rules. So basically, that is a system we have. There's always a little juggling of some, like California's moved way up to try to be part of it. But the early states under the present system, they they like that territory. Uh, It's good economics for them, and they ain't moving. And in the aggregate, those four states do represent uh, a lot of different elements of uh, of the country. Listen, first of all, let me get a plug in here. Uh, this Saturday night on my Axe Files on CNN TV show, uh, I've departed from my normal uh, interview uh, format, and I'm doing a piece on the Iowa caucuses and really exploring the Iowa caucuses. I went out and spent several days in Iowa talking to the candidates, talking to the organizers, talking to voters. And I think the thing that you come away from, and it's what I've always believed, and I've been on the winning and losing end of the Iowa 
Federal caucuses, so I, you know, I think I have a pretty good perspective on this. Those people take it damn seriously. They do. They, they really see. They understand that they have uh, an extraordinary role in this process, and they take it very, very seriously. And they, they literally do. I did a panel with voters. They talk about going to see candidates three and four times before they make their decisions and they take notes and they really think hard uh, about it. Um, You know, I'm a fan of that process. I'm also a fan of a place where candidates actually have to interact with people on a very human level. These candidates go to small events. They, they have to answer questions. Um, they, they go into people's living rooms, as you would if you were running for the county sheriff. And these voters, and by extension, the, through the media, voters elsewhere, get a real sense of who these people are. And so uh, I am a fan of the, the process, Iowa, New Hampshire, the early states. I think they, they serve as a necessary funnel uh, in this process, and they really do put the candidates to the test. I remember the first McCain 2000 town hall in New Hampshire with free ice cream, and I think we drew three people. So you, you start small there, and if you have a message and it resonates, you can grow. That said, you better have Boston Television, too. And the same thing in the Iowa caucus, where the TV ads now went up this week. Maybe next week we'll do a TV review. Uh, the other thing, and just to reinforce what you're saying, the Iowans are so nice. All these cynical, jaded political operatives roll into town, these reporters, and they're they're incredibly nice. The New Hampshire people are nice in their own way, but they're a little more flinty. You know, Pepperidge Farm, uh, <laughs> a little more proper. Uh, but the, the Iowans are just the nicest people in the world. So sometimes the process does a lot of good for the, the cynical, jaded political consultants and reporters who invade the state. Though I've always noticed the Iowans are quite shrewd, still remembering the kind of slotting fees we used to have to pay at the Ames Straw Poll at... Uh, milking the uh, the out-of-state money. So it, it's a quirky process, but I agree with you. I think it's, uh, it's a pretty good one. And let me just wait. One last point on this. Uh, m- most of the major candidates have, uh, in the last few weeks around the Iowa State Fair, issued pretty detailed rural plans, plans for rural America. Um, rural America often does get neglected in this. They get, they've been exploited, I think, in some ways by uh, Donald Trump, uh, who has uh, who has fed off the sense of loss in rural America, but not offered a whole lot of solutions, and his tariffs have punished farmers. Uh, but uh, Democrats have been guilty of ignoring rural America too, and I think that, but for the Iowa caucuses, maybe there wouldn't be this much thought given to these issues. So that is an ancillary benefit. Uh, of the Iowa caucuses. Let me say, this leads right into my last call, okay? Uh, and, and that is um, Bernie Sanders. Uh, and, I, you know, I, I kind of get a kick out of Bernie Sanders. I sat down with him in Iowa. I admire the fact that he's been saying the same thing for half a century. Uh, and I think his supporters admire that he's been saying the same thing uh, for half a century. And in many ways, he has influenced uh, thinking on some uh, issues, but man, he he just he is not a warm and fuzzy guy. So let me just read you the <laughs> be, the account of his uh, visit to the Iowa State Fair. Bernie Sanders examined the butter cow. You know that tradition. There's a 600 right, pound right. butter cow that uh, is sort of sacred uh, at the Iowa State Fair. He power walked by the Ferris wheel. He gobbled a corn dog, and then the next sentence is he spoke to almost no one. 
Uh, and that is that, you know, Bernie Sanders has something to say and he goes out there and he says it and he's passionate about it. And it's very much about uh, the, you know, how people are being abused by big corporations and a corrupt system, but he doesn't particularly like interacting with people. And it reminds me of that old saying, you know, the old definition of a liberal is they, they love people, they love humanity, but hate people. Right. It's right. sort of the definition of that. Yeah, the worst thing of the workers' paradise and the workers' revolution is dealing with the workers. Um, you know, yeah. before you get to your last call, yeah. Bernie was on my first, uh, I'm getting a double plug in today, Bernie was on my first Axe Files podcast ever, and in that podcast, at the end of that podcast, I said, we're headed to uh, the University of Chicago, we were in the back of an RV, I said, there are 2,500 kids waiting for you, you're an unlikely rock fan a rock star and he, he looked at me and he said just don't talk to me about those selfies i hate those selfies <laughs> and you know even he now is forced to be taking selfies he told me when i saw him in iowa now that he's eased up on the no selfies rule anyway what's on your mind well um yeah bernie sounds like the perfect guy to give an unprecedented level of government power to um yeah plugs i'll be at the receipt of boat show next saturday balloons for the kids no um my last call today is a bit of a call for blood because there's this huge debate in the democratic party about winnability is it going to be safe comfortable old joe or oh, we need the fiery rhetoric of uh, Elizabeth Warren or whoever it might be, kind of the anti-Biden. I would encourage these candidates when they're at Houston at the one or two nights of debates, kind of depending, we have a few more who might get in and make it two nights again, to really slug it out. Stop being so afraid to really take after each other on ideology, because the Republicans are going to do it. Elizabeth Warren has not been battle-tested yet on some of her ideas. Now, there have been spats between Biden and Kamala, you know, with this tiered system we have. But whoever is on the stage with Elizabeth Warren owes the Democratic Party a full frontal attack on some of her most controversial ideas to see if she can defend them, to test out the kind of campaign she'd uh, face in the fall, because if she gets essentially a ideological walk in the primary, I think you, the Democrats are going to take an immense amount of risk in those Great Lakes and other swing states that if they don't win, it's four more years of the Donald. So that's my advice to the Democrats. Time to play rough to get ready. All right, brother. We'll see you next week. And Give give your traditional. Oh yeah, let me let me do there. a few plugs. Yeah, real plugs here. First of all, you want to be in the mailbag. We want to hear from you. It is hacksontap at gmail.com. We're getting more and more questions. We love getting them. Hacksontap at gmail.com. And second, you want to help the show? You want to be kind of a amateur propagandist? Well, here's what you can do. You can pretend you're Vladimir Putin. So you want to hold a drug bear and you want to go on iTunes. And you want to rate us. You want to write a comment about us. Like us, hate us, whatever you think. We look at them. But what they really do is help the iTunes and other podcast platform algorithms push the podcast to other people who may not heard of it. So you can help us get the word out. And we really appreciate that as we do your time to listen. So until then, Axe, I'll see you next week on Hacks on Tap. See you, man.